The message is the woman, Mary Magdalene. You know, the Bible tells us God made um, the woman for the man, not the man for the woman. Genesis 2.18 and 1 Corinthians 11.9 gives us that clear commentary. Um, she was to help the man in such a way that she would complete him in life. She's a compliment. She's not a, um, a, a person of competition. Uh, the fall makes things difficult, and the fall causes us to want to uh, control one another. Um, woman's lib did not begin in the Roaring Twenties. It began back in Genesis in chapter 3. Uh, he says, uh, her desire will be to rule over you and he to control her. It's a sin nature. Uh, it should be no surprise then that some of the most faithful individuals to Jesus throughout his ministry were women. One of these was Mary Magdalene, who had been uh, touched by the Lord's gracious power, resulting in her radical devotedness to Jesus. Um, we want to look at Mary under three categories. First, we want to see the woman called Mary Magdalene. Secondly, the wayward condition of Mary Magdalene. And then thirdly, the loving commitment of Mary Magdalene. Everything, as always, should come from the scriptures. Um, and that's what we do. We search the scriptures diligently to find out if those things are so. Let's begin with uh, the woman called Mary Magdalene. Uh, the name Mary, uh, as some of you know, is of Hebrew origin. And the name Mary uh, means rebelliousness or obstinacy. <laughs> Interesting. The name Mary is a very common name in the Bible. If you've ever read particularly the New Testament, there are no less than six in the New Testament. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, Matthew thirteen fifty five. Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, in Luke ten thirty eight through forty two. Mary, the wife of Cleopas, in John nineteen twenty five. Mary, the mother of James, the younger or the less, in Joseph and Mark fifteen forty. And we saw James this morning. We did our study on him. Then there's Mary, the mother of John Mark, a sister of Barnabas. In Acts 12, 12, and Mary, a Roman Christian who is greeted by Paul in Romans 16, verse 6. Now, the family of Mary. There is no parental genealogy for Mary that is given to us, none whatsoever. Uh, the genealogy that we really have focus and center more on the genealogy of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the lineage of David to ensure that everything was according to God's promises. This is not uncommon in the scriptures. The only family that Mary is identified with, really, is the family of God. The focus of Mary's relationship is a spiritual one. And at times when we come to the Lord, those of the family of God become closer to us than many of our bloodline family uh, members. Um, the Jewish um, um, families of the first century, if, when they accepted the Lord, they were considered as dead. If an Orthodox Jew accepts Christ Jesus today, they write him off as dead. 
Um, and so many of the first century individuals lost their entire families. And it was a family of God that became uh, closer than their original family. We, um, there was no brothers, no sisters that are mentioned. Uh, no close family ties. Uh, she's just presented as a, a woman, as we'll see, that was uh, under a very uh, terrible condition. Now, the name of Mary is identified by her place of residence. Mary is simply known as Mary of Mag Magdalene, and we'll see that's from Magdala. And that's how she's identified. She's um, entitled that. The phrase appears 12 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in John. 12 times repeated over and over again. No other identification for her. Now, the word Mag Magdalene is in the Aramaic origin, and it means a tower. The city of Magdala. Some of you were in Israel with us, and we drove by there. It's a new site that they just discovered and started unearthing that tell. And they are discovering and, and clearing out the original synagogue that without doubt Jesus preached there. Because he used to make a circuit around the Galilee preaching in the synagogues and teaching. Um, the city of Magdala is mentioned once in Matthew's gospel, Matthew fifteen thirty-nine. Jesus just fed 4,000 besides women and children on the mountain of the Sea of Galilee, as you know. It says that when he, had, uh, when he sent away the multitudes, he got into the boat and came to the region of Magdala. Magdala is located on the western shore of the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee. It's not a sea, it's freshwater, but it's called Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, the Lake of Tiberias. There's four or five names that are given to it. It's about three miles or five kilometers south of Tiberias on the south side end of the plain of Gennesaret. Uh, now, Magdala was also called by the Greeks by the name Terechia. So, various regions around there, remember the, uh, the Sea of Tiberias, the side of Tiberias, which is the eastern side, that was all Gentile side, while the Jews were mostly on the, on the western side towards the north, okay, and, and running down to the south. Um, the city was important for several things. Um, like agriculture, uh, certainly fishing and curing, and shipbuilding. And uh, some of you, again, were with us in Israel, and we saw that ship, that boat that they just recovered years past uh, from the days of Jesus, and they had to preserve it and everything else, and it's there in the museum now that we visit. Um, it was important also for trade, a trading center, and uh, it was of considerable wealth because of all these uh, specific things. Now, the city population was predominantly Gentile once again. Um, there was a um, hippodrome where they uh, raced chariots. Uh, the Jewish Wars, uh, Volume uh, 2, the 21st uh, page, uh, the third line, gives us that information. The city had a bad reputation regarding licentiousness, very loose. Um, the rabbis, in fact, later attributed the fall of the city to their licentiousness, again in the Midrash and Lamentations, um, volume 2, verse 2. So these are 
extra commentaries that give us light on the uh, region and the city there. Um, you know, man is forever thinking himself to be such a great value and of great importance that he is uh, forever comparing himself uh, to others. It's this um, mentality of I'm better than you, I can do it better, and this is the fallenness of man. Um, it, it, it's, it, that we don't esteem others higher than ourselves. Uh, the natural thing is to exalt ourselves above others. And so when we're born again, God begins to deal with our heart to turn, to turn us right side up. We're really upside down. But he turns us right side up so that we can be all we can be through him. Um, yet I find it comical of God that um, he made us of the most common substance, dirt. The dust of the ground. It has been estimated that the chemical contents, the inorganic compounds of a 150-pound man was worse in 1930, 98 cents. In 1960, $3.50. In 1970, $5.60. So we're climbing, but there's still nothing, you know. Um... Taking the ratio of increased value between the decades of the 60s and 70s, 1.6 or 60%, man is still not as valuable as he thinks. We want to push it to the year 2000? I'm worth $22.94. Kind of puts things into perspective, doesn't it? <laughs> Every person is common in terms that they're they are sinful and weak. And yet when man, and when I say man, I'm speaking about both men and women, mankind is always attempting to declare how great they are and how strong they are, which is really a double weakness. Each of us has a sin nature. There is no exception. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says we were dead in trespasses and sins. A woman, no woman has ever given birth to a sinless child. Every woman that gives birth to a child brings in one more rotten little sinner. You better thank God. God gives you babies, ladies, without teeth. Unable to walk from the womb and have enough strength to grab you by the throat when you won't feed them on time. The problem, he's just like you. Just after your kind, a sinner, self-centered, selfish. Each of us are in a rebellion against God with no capacity to submit to God. Romans 8, 7 tells us that. Oh, we can do some moral thing. We have a moral capacity because we're creating the image and likeness of God. But because of the fallenness, that image and likeness has been marred. And our bent is towards disobedience, rebellion, and sin and darkness. 
The exception is that we can help little old ladies across the street. We can do something heroic. But it's not the rule. After our nature. Each of us has a spiritual void that God has placed purposely in order that he alone fill it in Romans 8.20. So mankind tries to fill this void with um, success, pleasure, drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever. You fill it in. And it seems to kind of, yes, I found it. I, I found the answer to life. But then after a while, you have to find something else. You have to up the ante. Because that void can only be filled by the person of Jesus Christ in a personal relationship. God did that purposely, Romans 8, 20 says. Every person is a descendant of Adam. This is uh, our genealogy. The first Adam sinned against God in Genesis 3, as you know. The first Adam had children after his own likeness, fallen. Remember Cain and Abel? A couple of guys called Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain did not kill Abel because he loved him. He killed him because he loved to kill him. Because he hated him. Because God accepted Abel's offering, not his. Envy. Jealousy. Hmm. Genesis 5.3 says that uh, Adam brought forth children after his own likeness. What's that? Sinful. Many people that come to Jesus for salvation come from a life of debauchery at times. In some form of ungodliness. Some of them come from the worst part of town, from the lowest level of society. But the grace of God is able to cleanse them. They hear the gospel. They agree with God regarding their sinful condition. They see that Jesus is the only solution. And they are in need of salvation by the grace of God. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen says. No pastor, no, no person can ever convince someone that they are sinners. No person can ever convince a person that there's a heaven or not convince them that there's a hell. That comes by the conviction and illuminating work of the Spirit of God as the Word of God is proclaimed. Jesus turns no person away because he's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance in 2 Peter 3, 9. The sad thing is that not everybody wants to repent. He's not willing that any perish but people, some people want to perish. They want nothing to do with Jesus. But it's interesting, man's arguments, they, you know, they say, I don't want, I need your Jesus, your Jesus, you know, that's just your crutch for weak people. Yeah, 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 okay. But then, that person gets in trouble. Something happens. And so they call you up, you're ministering unto them, and they say, well, why would God allow that to happen to me? What do you mean, God? You did it. 
God didn't steal a car and say, hey, jump in the shotgun. We're going to go cruising. You did it. If you're stubborn enough to reject the gospel and dedicated and committed enough to go to hell, God won't stop you. Break his heart, but he won't stop you. Jesus is able to forgive all manner of sin except the one of rejecting him. Getting to the point of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in Mark 3, 29. That's the only sin that's not forgiven. A continual rejection of Jesus Christ to where you die without repentance. Can it happen before you die? Yeah, I believe it can. I don't know the heart of man. I don't know who has, who has not before they die, but... You don't want to be there. Many people um, get nervous. They say, well, you know, I think I've committed the sin of blasphemy. And I just start smiling and, and, and I see their face kind of, what's wrong with you? Because if you think you have, that's evidence you have not. Because when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, the last thing on your mind is, I think I blaspheme. And the last place you'd be would be in church or asking a Christian about it. You've been given up. Paul tells the Romans that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, they shall be saved, Romans 10, 13. He didn't say just the ones who have stolen three candy bars. If you steal six, I can't save you. Only the ones that have committed certain sins. And if you've committed other sins, you can't be forgiven. No. A blank check. He casts your sins as far as east as the west, buries in the deepest ocean, puts them behind his back. Wow. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can bring that conviction and understanding. This was a woman called Mary Magdalene, as we'll see. Second, let's look at the wayward condition of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute. Let me begin by saying that. Um, because she is presented like that so often. Uh, Luke 7, verse 36 to 50. Um, the identification of Mary Magdalene as a prostitute is a teaching and tradition that has been accepted by the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church, while rejected by the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church. Every time the Roman Catholic Church portrays Mary Magdalene, it is as a prostitute, even in the movies. Always. Unbiblical. Unscriptural. The confusion is placing her with the dinner invitation Jesus went to at the house of Simon the Pharisee that Luke seven thirty six tells us. They put her there. The woman, if you remember, was a woman of the city, a nameless prostitute who knew Jesus sat at the table and she came to worship him with a box of fragrant oil, verse 37 says. The woman washed the feet of Jesus with her tears, dried them with her hair, and kissed his feet and she anointed them with the fragrant oil, verse 38 says. The Pharisee, Simon, speaking to himself, said if 
he knew what manner of woman she was. Or if he was a prophet, he would know what manner of woman she was. In verse 39, Jesus um, reading the heart of Simon proceeded to give a parable to Simon about two debtors asking which would love his master more if forgiven a debt to which um, he responded, the one whom forgave the more. The one he forgave the more. Jesus says, you have rightly judged in verse 40 to 43. Simon hung himself. Jesus read his heart. He didn't say anything audible. The Lord first rebuked Simon, pointing out that he had not offered to wash his feet or anoint his feet or put oil on his head when he entered his house. But this woman, he said, had washed his feet with her tears and did not cease to kiss them since he entered and anointed his feet with the fragrant oil, verse 44 through 46 says, rebukes him sharply. Jesus said, do you see this woman? Why? Because Simon merely saw a whore, a prostitute, not a woman that repented. He was self-righteous. He wanted to find fault in Jesus. Hmm. Jesus then told Simon that because her sins were many but were forgiven, therefore she loved much and told her to go in peace. Verse 47 through 50. This is the woman that they always mistaken Mary Magdalene for. <laughs> Mary Magdalene was not the Mary who anointed the Lord's feet, even in John 12. One through eight. That text, the place of the anointing of the feet of Jesus was Bethany where Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Verse one tells us. But the house was that of Simon the leopard. Okay. The dinner was in honor of Jesus, but Lazarus was sitting as the guest of honor sitting with Jesus. Verse two tells us. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, took costly spinkner and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped them with her hair, filling the entire room with the fragrance, verse 3 tells us. The objection came from Judas Iscariot in verse 4 and 5, declaring that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. A denarii was one day's wages. That's a year's wages. And given to the poor, verse 4 and 5. The Apostle John in verse 6 tells us that Judas did not object because he cared for the poor. But because he was a thief being the treasurer and he stole from the box. In verse 7 and 8, the Lord Jesus rebuked Judas mildly. By declaring to leave her alone, for she had anointed him for his burial. 
and that the poor they had with them always, but he was here for a short time. Verse 7 and 8. Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven demons. That's who she is. Mark and Luke both give us this description of Mary Magdalene. Mark tells us in Mark 69 that um, Jesus had cast out seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. Luke tells us Mary Magdalene had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Luke 8, 2. We're not told of the infirmities, but demons at times cause infirmities as we've studied the scriptures. Um, the word infirmities is used of weakness or sickness or disease. The same word is used in the fulfillment of Isaiah that Jesus um, took on himself our infirmities, Matthew eight seventeen. Matthew quotes Isaiah's word for physical healing. Peter quotes the same text for spiritual healing. Jesus died both for our spiritual healing and physical healing when we go to him in prayer as he sovereignly wills. Both are included. Mark 9.25 says, When Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to a deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. The danger is that some people may teach that all physical illnesses or impairments are satanic and the result of being demon-possessed. That's wrong. There are people who are deaf, blind, and dumb. They can't speak out of a birth defect or an accident. It has nothing to do with demons. But we do know that demons can cause such impairments. Is that clear? So not everybody who has these impairments means they're demon-possessed. All right? The ones we read in Scripture in that context, those were as a result of demon possession. But it does not mean that everyone that we see that has those impairments is demon possessed, okay? And I'm being very purposeful in repeating that because in Pentecostal circles, you have a lot of weird stuff that goes on. Even today, you have a lot of, uh, you hear of delivering ministries, and they lay hands on you to deliver you from the demon of gluttony, the demon of lust, the demon of cigarettes, the demon of that. Well, if, if you turn to Galatians, it says those are the works of the flesh, not demons. What an interesting, um, clever play of Satan to have God's people spend more time focusing on Satan instead of the worship and the study of God's word. When all it is is the work of the flesh. How interesting that the demon of lust comes on you all the time when you go over to your girlfriend's house at three in the morning. And so there's so much carnality that goes on and reinforced by the Christian church and deliverance ministries. 
Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Light and darkness cannot occupy the same vessel. No Christian can be demon-possessed. When you sin and I sin, don't blame Satan. I'm sure Satan many times, because you know Satan has access to God, right? Heaven. Book of Job. Where you been, Lou? Oh, cruising up and down the earth. And I believe sometimes when we go, well, you know the devil, you know, Satan goes to God. I didn't do anything. I don't now, there's spiritual warfare, but I cannot blame. Some of you aren't old enough, but those of you that are old enough, you remember Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it. He said that all the time. Funny. Because it is funny. If you're a Christian, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. First John 4, 4. So identify your flesh. You're giving into your flesh. You're catering to your flesh. What are you looking at? What are you reading? Where do you go? What are you doing? You know, if you add fire to gas, there's an explosion, right? And so we try to justify ourselves or excuse or accuse others to excuse ourselves. What's wrong? So none of this is taught in scripture that is so practiced in the church to there. It's the sinfulness of man, his nature. The scriptures do not provide for us any detail about Mary Magdalene's demon possession. It just says it. Have you ever noticed that? That when you look to the scriptures and you read the New Testament, the Gospels, and even the book of Acts... When a person is, is a non-believer and then through idolatry or a person is demon-possessed, it just gives the revelation straight into the point and God gets the glory and God is the one that is declared to be more powerful. But there's not these juicy testimonials that we hear over churches all the time. Christians get excited about this trashy testimonial sometimes. And the person who's known for the testimony, within time, it becomes uh, evangelistical. It keeps growing. And people, you know, I mean, whipped cream on some pudding is okay. But if you just try to live on whipped cream, it might take your hunger pains away, but it's not going to nourish you. You must study the word of God. You must seek the Lord. You must serve the Lord. You must grow, develop, and mature in Christ. We are not told how she became involved with the occult. We are not told if these infirmities were related to the possession. We're not told how and when she came to Jesus. We're not told the manifestations of her possession at all. We're only told that she was possessed by seven demons and that Jesus cast them out. I love it. Think with me. Permit me some license here. Paul the Apostle chases Christians, pursues them, incarcerates them, forces them to blaspheme, 
gives his thumb down to kill them. Do you realize what kind of testimony he could give to us in Scripture? He never does. He just says, I used to do some of these things. He always gave the word of God. Hmm. It's been put this way. Just to be tender, just to be true, just to be loving, just living anew. Just to be holy, just to be clean, just trusting my Savior on him to lean. Just to be steady, just to be free, just to be ready, his power to see. Just to be happy, just to be right, just to be joyful, walking in the light. Just to be winning souls that are lost, just telling of Jesus who paid the cost. Just to be serving, just to be real, just leading the helpless, his grace to feel. Just to be waiting, Jesus from heaven just to be having his victory given, just to be kind, wrongs to forget, victorious prayers, none will regret. The grace of God. That's something to get excited about, ladies and gentlemen. But there are some Christians that are, uh, if they're not being um, spiritually cheerlead-led, to get up and shout and, you know, raise your hands and, you know, and, and it, rolling around the floor or, you know, whatever. And if, if they're not breaking a sweat, they don't believe the Holy Spirit's present. A lot of extreme Pentecostal people, four square and assembly of God, they look at you and I, they think we're dead. There's no Holy Spirit there. The Bible says inspiration, not perspiration. It's important. Okay? Very important. Perhaps um, you may be a woman who, in her youth or otherwise, had lived a very immoral life. Some even in prostitution. And you think Jesus can't forgive you, he can. Jesus came to preach to publicans the lowest of the Jewish category among men, prostitutes, murderers. And so Satan always lies to us. Um, let me um, give you an easy way to differentiate between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation is when you have repented from your sin, you've asked Christ to forgive you, and you've turned about, and you're walking with God. But Satan rubs your nose in it once in a while. Or other people do. Or worse yet, you do. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Conviction is when you're in sin and Jesus is the Holy Spirit says, what are you doing there? So what are you to do? Turn away from it, ask forgiveness. No condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. He's forgiven you. A new creature in Christ Jesus 
2 Corinthians 5.17. Remember how differently Jesus dealt with the woman at Simon's house, lovingly forgiving her as well as the woman caught in the very act of adultery, Luke 7 and John 8. He says, word, your accusers, woman, because if she was caught in the very act, there should have been a guy there, right? Where was he? He says, neither I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That is the proclamation of repentance. Okay? When a person is in Christ Jesus, old things pass away, as I say, all things become new. You've got a divine nature now. You're trusting God. You're not sinless. You are not perfect. You will miss the mark, but you don't live the way you used to. Before, I couldn't hit the mark at all. If I did, someone was running to catch my bullet or arrow. As a Christian, I will miss because I'm not perfect, but I can hit that stinking bullseye now. You can hit it by the grace of God, through the word of God, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, through the study of the word, through doing good warfare, by putting on the mind of Christ, by bringing my thoughts into captivity, by not catering to my flesh, all of those things. God will bless you with a godly man. Ladies, who will love you, if such is the case that I've mentioned, as you're honorable and truthful as to where you come from? He'll love you for who you are now, not for what you were. And if he doesn't, it's best to find out before you say, I do. Always, not afterwards. Very important. What God has cleansed, we are never to call common. Acts 10, 15. You remember Peter was up in the house, rooftop of Joppa, got hungry, saw vision of all manner of unclean things, uh, clean things coming down, unclean things. And Jesus says, take, kill, and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord. That's a contradiction. If he's Lord, you can't say no. And he was given a vision. He was going to send him to the house of Cornelius, the Gentiles. The Jews thought Gentiles were simply created to kindle the fires of hell. And he says, don't ever call unclean the Gentiles that are cleansed. So whatever God, whenever God forgives a person, he's never, she's never to be called common. Wow. You have to remember that every time. I have to remember that every time. Because my natural bent is to think the old Xavier way. I have to think the new Xavier way. The mind of Christ. Perhaps you're a woman who has sat at the feet of Jesus and worshipped him. And maybe you're very moral, obedient to him, ethical. You've never strayed in a real immoral way or anything. But that can't get you into heaven. 
You still need to repent, acknowledge you're a sinner. All fall short of the glory of God. Paul says there's not one good. All of us are good for nothing. You must be fully persuaded of that. If you're not, then you will always exalt yourself over someone else. Always. The sin of self-righteousness is self-deception that can result in being lost forever. For unless our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, we will in no way enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said in Matthew 5.20. In no way. Perhaps you have dealt with uh, familiar spirits in the world or even possession. Today there's a great interest in growing involvement with demons and familiar spirits with the new age. Um, To our lifetime, um, it started in the 60s with the uh, British invasion and all the drugs and the permissiveness and and the uh, Middle East um, um, gurus and all. And it, it just kept progressing. And uh, demons can give you power, but you end up being a slave. Know that God condemns all who seek necromancers, the dead, mediums, one who conjures spells, divination, sorcery, soothsayers, witchcraft, pronosticators, astrologers, or familiar spirits. Deuteronomy 8 and 11, 2 Kings 21, 6, and 2 Chronicles 33, 6. Very, very clear. And yet I, I hear sometimes Christians say, oh yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm doing uh, yoga. Really? Do you know the background of yoga? You know the origin? You know the source of yoga? Oh, but this is Christian yoga. Yeah, just like Christian psychology, right? No such animal. Hmm. Know that Jesus is greater than he that's in the world. Again, 1 John 4, 4. Know that if you open your heart to Jesus, he will cast out any demon in you. And um, he gives some specific instructions regarding possession to the religious leaders that they were accusing them of casting out demons by the prince of Beelzebub in Luke eleven twenty-four. 24. Um, on down, in 24, it says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. So when a person is demon-possessed and that demon leaves for whatever reason or is cast out, he's going to attempt to come back. Verse 25, and when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there in the last state of that Man is worse than at the first, verse 26 says. So if a person, that demon leaves, the first thing we want to do is ask that person to accept Christ Jesus. 
so that void can be filled with the light of Christ. Because that demon's going to come back. If he comes back and is swept and garnished, he's going to bring six other friends with him. All right? But if you've accepted Christ, now light has filled your life. There will be warfare. There will be harassment, oppression. Try to deceive you, but again, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Is that clear? No Christian can be demon-possessed. So this was the wayward condition of Mary Magdalene before she became a Christian. Not after. Third, let's look at the loving commitment of Mary Magdalene. In Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, Mary Magdalene was a giver as a disciple of Jesus and the ministry. In, in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass afterwards that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, the twelve apostles. The preaching was for the reconciliation of man with God. The preaching was that the kingdom of God was present. Then in verse 2, he says, And certain women, certain women who had been healed of uh, evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom um, had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So the ministry of these women was to meet the needs of the apostles and Jesus. Often, the reference is to their substance, meaning their possessions and their finances. Notice Jesus never chose 12 apostolates. Okay? Not one woman. The early church, not one woman was made a pastor of the church. It is a shame for a woman to usurp authority over a man, very clear. And you see that today in the church so often. It's contrary to Scripture. Now, Mary Magdalene was committed as a disciple of Jesus to his very death on the cross. In Matthew seven fifty-five through 56, Mary was one of the several women who were present, if you remember. Mary Magdalene was present when Jesus uh, committed his mother to John and she to him in John nineteen twenty-five. Mary Magdalene and the other women witnessed the death of Jesus as they stood afar off. Mark fifteen forty through 41 tells us. Mary Magdalene was so thankful for her deliverance and salvation by Jesus, causing her to be a courageous, caring, and faithful servant. When someone has transformed your life from demons and forgiven you, of every sin that you've ever committed, the natural response is gratitude, faithfulness to that person. 
Mary Magdalene was the first to the tomb, if you remember. In Matthew 27, 61 to 28, 1, Matthew tells us Mary Magdalene was sitting opposite the tomb as well as the other Mary after Joseph of Arimathea wrapped the body of Jesus up and returned after the Sabbath. Mark and Luke both tell us that Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come to anoint him. In Mark 16, 1 and Luke 23, 55 to 24, 1. John is the only one who tells us that it was Mary Magdalene who first went to the tomb early while it was still dark. John 20, verse 1. Now that we've studied her condition, you can see why she was the first there, right? <laughs> when people are constantly late to serve, they demonstrate it's not a priority of love. It's just not a priority. When people are thankful to God, their life changes. Priorities change. Their attitude changes. When people who serve are only interested in how fast they can leave, they give themselves away. They're serving out of duty, not out of love. Mary was not that person, contrary to that. In Luke, Chapter 24, verse 1 through 11. Mary Magdalene was sent by the angels, you know, to report the resurrection to the disciples. In verse 1 and 2, Mary Magdalene and the other women found the stone rolled away, which they had been worried about, remember? They were worried about something that they did, they, it was never going to happen, but at least they worried, right? The angel rolled it away. Not to let Jesus out, but to let them in. In verse 3, they entered into the tomb and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And in 4 and 5, they became perplexed. And two men of shining garments told them not to be afraid and asked them why they were seeking the living among the dead in verse 4 and 5. And then they heard the word, He is not here, but risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again, verse 6 and 7. Jesus laid it all out. They, they weren't looking for a suffering Messiah. They were looking for a conquering Messiah. They couldn't wait to get to Jerusalem because they were going to sit on the right hand and the left hand, James and John, right? That's what they wanted, right? Wow. Then they remembered his words, returning and telling the eleven the message. But it seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them, verse 8 through 11. They didn't believe the women. You know how women are, right? The old sin nature. Matthew tells us Jesus appeared to them as they were on their way to tell the disciples in Matthew 28, 9, 10. And then we're told in verse 12, but Peter arose and ran to the tomb 
And stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed marveling to himself at what had happened. You see, Mary Magdalene had a personal appearance of Jesus herself. The Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 11 through 18, gives us that. Um, Mary Magdalene was asked by the angel why she was weeping, to which she responded that they had taken away her Lord and she did not know where he was in verse 13. Mark tells us that Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene in Mark 69. Very clear. Now when she had, verse 14 and 15 here of John 20, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him or laid him, and I will take him away. Literally, I'll carry him. <laughs> 14 and 15. Now you know that she as a woman wouldn't be able to pick up that dead body. It'd be so heavy. But when someone loves somebody, that's not a problem. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Verse 16 and 17. Wow. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her in verse 18. Jesus appeared to her. Gave her that direct message. David and Robert McShane were uh, Scottish brothers. Both had brilliant minds. Um, there the resemblance ended. David the older was quiet and studious. He spent most of his leisure time at hope helping with family chores. David was also a devoted Christian too, uh, too much so in the opposite opinion of Robert. Once Robert came home from an evening of reveling and found David kneeling in prayer. Quote, I heard you call my name, Dave. He sneered. Am I really that bad? The sensitive David tried to explain, quote, we're all sinners who need to trust in Christ. Robert shrugged and excused himself from the conversation. The door of opportunity swung wide for Robert when he enrolled in the University of Edinburgh. His talents for language, drawing, music, and poetry brought him many awards. His professors predicted greater fame ahead. Back home, David languished in illness. But he continued to pray for Robert until death silenced his lips. And when Robert became a Christian in the years ahead, Robert's star steadily rose until he became the most beloved Presbyterian minister in Scotland 
in the British Isles. At 23, he became pastor of the 4,000-member St. Peter's Church in Dundee. His ministry lasted only seven years, from 1836 to 1843. He became known as the holiest man in Scotland. His church was crowded hours ahead of time by people anxious to hear explain the scriptures. A painful, consumptive cough tortured his body during the last months of his life. Throughout his illness and even in his dying delirium, he talked about the one whom his brother had helped him to love. That is the most important message or the thing we can give to anybody, ladies and gentlemen. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that people would be saved. The servants who are like Mary Magdalene are motivated by their service, by the love of Jesus that forgave them. It's real simple. For love is as strong as death. Song of Solomon 8, 6, 7 says, Jealousy, as cruel as the grave, its flames and flames of fire. A most vehement flame, many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Love bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things, believes all things. Agape never fails, 1 Corinthians thirteen seven. Agape, not our fleshly love. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, 1 John three eighteen. That implies that we can do it. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4, 8. Not expose them, not share them, but cover them. Oh, that the number of Mary Magdalene's would increase who stand behind in service to the church. Giving to God what belongs to God, as the words of Jesus say, when he gave him a parable of paying taxes to Caesar. Giving is to be of what one has, not of what one does not have. First Corinthians eight twelve says, giving is to be without utter or ulterior motives, not begrudging. Second Corinthians nine five, giving is to be done hilariously from the heart. Second Corinthians nine seven. If you can't jump for joy, don't pollute our offering. God doesn't need it. We never talk about money here, but just touching related to the ministry of Mary Magdalene. The commitment of Mary Magdalene is a, uh, needed in the church today. There is too much lip service instead of word and deed um, that goes on. There is too much conditional service. There is too much cheap service, and it doesn't cost anything if I'm able. And yet, you think of the commitment of um, fanatics of football, basketball, baseball. They know every player. 
They know their averages. They know everything about them. As Christians, do you know your Bible? Hmm. There is too much respect of persons and service today with eye service as Ephesians 6, 6 and Colossians 3.22 speaks against. There is the danger of only being interested and involved in fellowship for the sake of fellowship without any intent to serve or to be ready to share the gospel or to be ready to declare our commitment to Christ regardless of the pressure, regardless of the persecution, always. The servant of God experiences Jesus as he reveals himself through the scripture according to the scriptures. So we always have to put ourselves next to the scripture. We study the scriptures. We commit ourselves to the scriptures. And so this was the loving commitment of Mary Magdalene. Jesus loved her, appeared to her, delivered her. So Mary Magdalene has been uh, touched by the Lord's gracious power resulting in her radical devotedness to Jesus evident by these three points the woman called Mary Magdalene the wayward condition of Mary Magdalene and the loving commitment of Mary Magdalene lessons that are applicable to us in principle because she was a sinner just like you and I and she was born again and forgiven like you and I and she served the same Lord that you and I serve so we should be able to learn these lessons from her Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your loving goodness. We thank you for tonight. And Lord, we pray you continue to deal with our hearts and how we thank you for these men and women that you have um, recorded in Scripture, how you touched their lives and the miracles you did and how you use common, normal people in miraculous ways, Lord, that just um, um, defies the old sin nature our selfishness, our sinfulness. And the Lord, you do that so that you get the glory and that we would receive the benefit for those that are looking, those that are listening. And so, Lord, we thank you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has um, brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Jesus died for you. He tasted death for you. He paid the price for you. He bore the wrath of God for you. And then he rose from the dead to confirm that the payment was accepted and paid. And if you see yourself as a sinner before God, whether you're here, the internet, or the radio, then you can call upon him right now right where you sit. A simple prayer of repentance is what is required. And this is such a prayer. If this is your desire, you can ask Christ right now in your heart, and he's going to forgive you and make you his child. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.